Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 14, and the first settlers are about to make their way out of the Dutch fort at the Cape after being allocated land to plant their gardens. This action, which Jan van Riebeek took in 1657, was to have reverberations, which are still being felt across southern Africa and beyond. It must be remembered that the VOC did not envisage colonization as an end to itself. It merely wished to substitute limited private farming for state production in order to reduce expenditure. So far we've heard how the VOC company commander at the Cape of Good Hope had managed to grow his vegetables and fruit, but was not able to secure enough head of cattle from the Kwekwe, despite his constant trading and badgering. The Kwekwe, for their part, had realized that the Dutch were not going to go away and had begun to show signs of more aggression, particularly in 1655 and 1656, with groups of Kwe setting up their shelters close to the VOC fort. In January 1657, Van Riebeek was visited by Harry, the Strandloper, who had become a significant player in the Cape, along with a local Khoi chief they called the Fat Captain. His name was Kogosha, and he was paramount chief of the Kogatukwa and the Goringhatona. More about him in a while. He represented a group of Khoi living where Salt River is today, and both were unhappy about what they'd heard when they received information that the Dutch were going to allow Freeburgers to own land. They were opposed to the idea of these freemen, the Dutch settlers permitted to own their own land around the fort. Van Riebeek explained there was enough room for all, and that all would benefit from the corn and tobacco grown on these new farms. This did not placate the Kwekwe, who argued their case and then left. The official announcement, as I mentioned last episode, was made on 21st February 1657 when van Riebeck released the details. One of the party of settlers would be based on the far side of the Amstel or Lisbeek River near Kromboom and the other west of the Lisbeek River where Rondebosch is today. The first settlement would be called Grunfeld or Greenland and the second would be called the Dutch Garden. Redoubts would be constructed to protect these two settlements beyond the safety of the fort. Van Riebeck took two visiting ship's captains to the sites, whereupon Harry then arrived and complained once more about the plan. He also mentioned that fighting had broken out between his people and the Kotkotkwa, or Soldanas. It was summertime. Remember that the Soldanas moved south into the peninsula over this period to graze their large herds. So until the final... So under the final conditions, each settler farmer would get 28 hectares of freehold land to be farmed with cereals for 12 years before he was allowed to sell. In future, only Dutch or German married men of good character were given land, and they were told they had to remain at the Cape for 20 years. The company provided rations and tools at cost on credit, as well as oxen, cows and sheep at fixed prices. The VOC would buy wheat from these farmers at these fixed prices in order to repay the debt. Vegetables could also be sold to ships three days after they arrived, provided the company's needs were first satisfied. There would be no private trading with these passing fleets without permission sought and granted. Commissioner Reikloff van Groens was one of the administrators behind the decision to grant Freeburgers land, and he advised van Riebeck to stipulate that these farmers could barter stock with a koikwe, provided that they bought all trade goods from the company. In other words, they had to buy tobacco and copper and other goods from the VOC in order to sell to the koi. They were also banned from outbidding the VOC. They were used as a 
form of franchise system, but this group of freemen established in the Lisbeck Valley on Kwekwe grazing land was to provoke the first war, as we'll hear. It was now that the settlement numbers began to grow from just over 100 in 1657 to more than 700 by the end of the century. The number of freeburgers who had been granted release from the company's service increased steadily as well. The number of Kwekwe living on the peninsula and the flats fluctuated with their migrations, but generally there were a few thousand to be found, particularly in summer. Then, in October 1658, something of a miracle occurred regarding Dutch translations. Suddenly, the company journal began describing the Kwe in far more accurate ways. Khoi tribal names were rendered more plausible to European ears, and they became more circumnavigable to Dutch tongues. It took the Dutch six years to piece together the alien sound of multiple clicks, and probably prompted by the dawning of the era of colonialism. Just out of interest, there are four main clicks in the Khoi language. Forgive my attempts, but they are... So, for people who don't know the language, that doesn't sound like a big difference, but, of course, there are vast differences. The main issue facing these settlers was not how to pronounce but how to access labor. The VOC policy was that the Khoikhoi should not be coerced into working for the Europeans, and they preferred their way of life, ancient as it was. There was only one solution. Slaves. There had been a handful living at the fort since the first days of the arrival of the Dutch. Even Van Riebeek had a slave but the first large contingent arrived in 1658. One ship had been sent on a clandestine mission to the Gold Coast, to Homi to be exact. The first slaves from Guinea and Angola were intractable and many absconded. Many others were returned to the fort as the freemen feared for their lives, living alone in the valley with slaves. But there was a second large group that arrived that year, captured from the Portuguese off Brazil. In the future, they would all come from Madagascar, Mauritius and the Far East. Places like Java, Sumatra and modern Malaysia. That's because the West African slaves were difficult to control, whereas those from the Far East were much further away from home and easier to manage. Before 1700, there were 12 expeditions sent to Madagascar from the Cape in order to purchase slaves. They were bought outside the usual company channels, although legally, the strange arrangement meant that the fiscal or the company law official, took a personal fee for any private slave imported to the Cape, even though the VOC wasn't directly involved. About 80% of those slaves were men, and by 1700 they would outnumber the settlers. That led to Van Riebeck suggesting that marriages should be encouraged between the men of the fort, especially the Freeburgers, and local Kwekwe women. As we'll hear, a few in fact did marry local women, but what Van Riebeck was suggesting was much more radical. He thought this should be official policy. The VOC commander believed that marriages should be encouraged between the Dutch and the Africans. There just weren't enough women around, and this made perfect sense. It would also strengthen the ties between the two groups and improve the men's lives as they were living alone in this foreign land. I smile at this because later the apartheid government's historiography would hold up Van Riebeck as a shining example of exclusive white or European values, whereas it's just not true. The man believed in some form of racial integration, although he obviously would not have thought of it that way. His own skin colour was apparently quite dark, his hair brunette. He was hardly a blonde Aryan. People in the 1650s were willing to consider this as an option as it made sound social sense. However, the VOC believed that the Dutch should keep their social distance, still unsure of what really to do about the Cape in its lists of entrepots, 
So the intermarriage concept was never made formal policy, although this was obviously already happening naturally. By now, the Khoikhoi had decided the Dutch actions amounted to provocation in spite of van Riebeck's promise that all would be well. It was into this fraught situation that one of the most important Khoikhoi leaders appeared. His name was Doman, a Goring Hakwa. Because of his ability to learn Dutch quickly, they packed him off to Batavia in late 1657, present-day Jakarta in Indonesia. There he witnessed firsthand the power and the pomp of the VOC and was impressed. He opportunistically declared his loyalty to the Dutch and said he desired to become a Christian. When he returned to the Cape in 1658, he acted as another of the intermediaries like Harry the translator. It was now that Duman realized he could not ignore the plight of the Kwekwe, his people. What really set him off was the abduction by van Riebeck of three Khoi leaders, Sasha, Peter and Osoa. It was an attempt to force Gogosha of the Gonghatkwa to hand over to the settlers the slaves who had absconded over time. These three were held against their will in the kitchen of the surgeon, but were well treated. Still, this enraged Duman of the Gonghatkwa. Duman concluded that the time was ripe to drive the Dutch out of the Cape before it was too late. He then tried to persuade the elderly paramount chief Gogosha of the Gohakukwa and Gohakona, or the fat captain, as the Dutch called him, to capture the fort. No fort meant the Dutch would be doomed. They'd be easy prey for the highly skilled Khoikhoi to pick off. But the prudent Gogosha was unwilling to act without securing the support of the far more powerful Trotkotwa people. When they refused to join any attack, Gogosha told Duman that as far as he was concerned, the fort was impregnable. Still, the talk of insurrection had inflamed passions. The Kwekwe disappeared from the Cape Flats in early 1658, and the Dutch knew something was up. Between March and May, there was virtually no contact between the two peoples. But it was on the 7th of May, 1658, that 100 Dutchmen from a visiting ship were attacked. They had climbed the side of Table Mountain to cut down trees to use as beams for the jetty, when they were set upon by around 500 Kwekwe and robbed of their food. The tense standoff could have ended with much bloodshed, but for the moment it was avoided. Van Riebeck and the ship's captain decided to let the matter rest there. However, you can tell that the situation was going to get worse. At the same time, the Dutch freemen staged their first strike, declaring that it is too hard that they are compelled to plant this or that to refrain from following their own bent, from bartering all sorts of things from the natives to sell to the ships. They also said, we will not be slaves to the company. Some decamped, leaving their debts unpaid. Most of these freemen preferred tavern-keeping or cattle bartering to growing vegetables anyway. Then, in 1658, more than 20 of Van Riebeck's men stowed away on board homeward-bound ships. They hated the Cape so much. And yet that same hard life of pastoralism would be at the heart of white settler expansion over the next 200 years and beyond. Meanwhile, Daman had managed to convince younger Kwekwe that his plan for freedom would work, although he told them they needed to wait another year before taking action. He wanted to attack in midwinter when the rains came. Duman motivated these youngsters with the concept that they would be liberated or saved from abuse if they managed to drive the Dutch away. It had worked against the Portuguese, after all. Duman had been able to gauge the effectiveness of Dutch military tactics firsthand, along with their firearms, when he lived in Java, so he deliberately waited until the rainy Cape winter of 1659 before he was to strike. The reason was simple. 
Dutch muskets could not fire with damp powder, and many of the Kwekwe leaders he spoke to knew this to be true. When the Dutch first landed in the Cape, the Kokoyan had been terrified by the unfamiliar weapons with their flashes of fire, earth-shattering detonations, dense clouds of dirty white smoke and invisible death-dealing projectiles. But by now, they'd also become used to these firearms. They were not alien weapons, and some had even been taught how they worked as they joined the Dutch in hunting expeditions. In one case, the Kwekwe and the Dutch had worked together to kill a lion close to where Constantia Neck is today in Cape Town. The Koi had surrounded the lion and kept it at bay until Van Riebeek's men arrived to shoot it dead. So how did these firearms work, and how didn't they? The VOC soldiers and sailors were armed with both matchlock and flintlock muskets as well as pistols, although it's not known exactly how many of each they had. The matchlock was still the most widely used firearm in the mid-17th century. They were usually of the weighty 6 kilogram variety. It had a smooth barrel and was 1.2 meters long. Its wooden stock another third of a meter in length. It was so heavy and cumbersome it had to be fired with its barrel resting on a forked stick. The mechanism was also rudimentary. A priming pan would be filled with fine black gunpowder poured from a powder flask or horn. The powder would be ignited by a smoldering meter-long length of match cord or rope soaked in a solution of saltpeter. A soldier would then have to keep the end glowing by blowing on it. When the trigger was pulled, an S-shaped hook pulled the rope down into the pan which exploded sending sparks flying into a small hole in the side of the barrel which ignited more coarse gunpowder poured down the barrel. Of course, wadding and a ball would be rammed down the barrel after the gunpowder. Too much gunpowder, the musket could blow up. Too little, the round would fall short. In wet weather, the match cord would fizzle out and the powder in the pan wouldn't fire. Because the match cord was left smouldering on both sides, in case one side went out, it was dangerous and could inadvertently set off the powder in the horn. It took at least 30 seconds to load, and beyond 50 meters was inaccurate as the barrel had no rifling. It took 28 different actions to load, so between shots, any attacker could run the equivalent of around 100 meters unless the shooters were staggering their firing or highly trained in sequencing. The Kwekwe knew all of this, so they also knew the weakness in the firearms. Doman waited patiently for his chance. He would not attack using the European method of lining up in ranks. He would be using the African method of dodging fire and rapid individual action. However, Van Riebeek's men were also armed with a flintlock, which connects a hammer holding a flint that strikes the closed pan, sending a spark into primed powder. This firearm was far more effective in wet weather but remained vulnerable. Three rounds could be fired in a minute from these muskets, and they were shorter and easier to carry. Duman knew the difference between these two types of weapons. So too did his Khoi Codres. By the end of 1658, another 40 VOC men based at the fort had decided they would give farming a go, while some were already trading as carpenters, fishermen and tailors, amongst other professions. They had no idea that Duman was planning his assault. Most of these freeburgers were to become disillusioned quite quickly. The main reason was corruption. Van Riebeek had been accused of running his own private enterprise in the Far East and fired by the VOC, sent home in humiliation. Now he was overseeing a system where corruption had taken root. And one of the men who was advantaged by the Dutch economic empowerment system was the commander of the garrison. By December 1658, Van Riebeek's own farm was already, and notably, the richest in the whole settlement. 
The Freeburgers' written complaint I mentioned earlier was sent to the VOC and led to Van der Riebeck's indignant response. I guess it's called plausible denial these days. However, the facts are that Freeburgers like Botmer and Boom had hit the nail on the head when they said that officials were feathering their own nest and neglecting the farmers' interests. These angry complaints and retorts were to characterize the relationship between the VOC and the Freeburgers for the next century and lead to the creation of a whole new group of people called Afrikaners. When Van Riebeck read the document alleging corruption, he was furious, but placated the petitioners with a rama or two of wine and promises that he'd intercede with the VOC directors for better prices. Promises, promises. It was the combination of the free men's petition and the issue of labor that was to become a turning point in Cape and South African history and led to the development of what is now known as the Cape Coloured Population. That was the combination of the Kwekwe, European, East Asian and African people. So by April 1657, there were 144 people at the VOC station in the Cape, 100 employees, 10 freeburgers, 6 married women, 12 children, 10 slaves and 6 convicts. By March 1659, the number of slaves had risen sharply when the Portuguese slaver was captured off Brazil and 250 slaves from Angola arrived at the Cape. However, many of these were too young to work and were sent to school under the Dutch chaplain and then monitored closely by Van Riebeck. It was a bit like a school inspector, popping in to check on the teacher's techniques, sitting at the back and taking notes. The kids were stimulated in their learning by the somewhat unethical practice of being given a tot of brandy and a wad of tobacco at the end of the day's lessons. Quite horrifying, really, if you think about it. Dutch grammar mark, A+. He has your shot of brandy and some chewing tobacco, little Yanni, aged 13. Some of these slaves taken from the Portuguese were old enough to work and sent out to the Freeburger farms. Then another consignment of slaves arrived on May 1659 when 228 Guinea slaves were landed. On the terrible trip, 43 others on board had died. It shows you just how calamitous the journey could be, how horrifying it must have been for these souls ripped from their homes and delivered like chattel to Latin America or the Cape of Good Hope. They were priced at 100 guilders a head to the Freeburgers on the 9th of May 1659, an extremely high value. Of course, they didn't hang around once sent to the Freeburgers' farms. In June 1659, Freeburger Kasper Brickmann met Van Riebeck with tears in his eyes to complain that all four of his Guinea slaves, both male and female, had deserted. Three days later, all Jan Rainier's stock of slaves vanished in a single night, while the company also lost seven others. And, waiting in the wings with his motivated Koi brothers, was Deman, readying himself for the coming assault on the Dutch. With that, we must halt this episode. In episode 15, we'll hear about the first Koi-Dutch War of 1659 to 1660. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can also contact me on Twitter, at Des Latham, or through desmondlatham.blog, where there's a little contact form. Until next, goodbye. Or in Norma, a Koi language, I say so hard.